So if you would, please take your Bible and turn with me to Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah chapter 6, a very familiar passage. Isaiah 6, we'll be reading from verses 1 through 10. Isaiah 6, verse 1. In the year of King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted, with the train of his robe filling the temple. Seraphim stood above him, each having six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called out to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts, the whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds trembled at the voice of him who called out, while the temple was filling with smoke. And then he said, then I said, woe is me, for I am ruined, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a burning coal in his hand, which he had taken from the altar with tongs. He touched my mouth with it and said, Behold, this has touched your lips, and your iniquity is taken away, and your sin is forgiven. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? Then I said, Here am I, send me. He said, Go and tell this people, Keep on listening, but do not perceive. Keep on looking, but do not understand. Render the hearts of this people insensitive, their ears dull and their eyes dim. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and return and be healed. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Father who is in heaven, as we approach your word this morning, as we approach this topic, as we approach you, help us as it were to remove the sandals from our feet, for we are standing on holy ground. Lord, we recognize that you are holy, holy, holy. We pray that we would also be holy, 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 just as you are. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, today we arrive at perhaps what is the most beloved and most celebrated attribute in the history of the church, the holiness of God. It was Sharnak who said, as his power is the strength of God's attributes, so his holiness is the beauty of them. As all would be weak without almightiness to back them, so all would be uncomely without holiness to adorn them. Should this be sullied, all the rest would lose their honor, as at the same instant the sun should lose its light. It would lose its heat, its strength, its generative and quickening virtue. In 1826, Reginald Heber 
the hymn writer wrote, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, in the morning our song shall rise to thee. Holy, 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 merciful and mighty, God in three persons, blessed Trinity. Holy, 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 though the darkness hide thee, though the eye of sinful man thy glory may not see, only thou art holy, there is none beside thee, perfect in power, in love, and purity. God's holiness is his beauty. God's holiness is his strength. God's holiness is his glory. God's holiness speaks of his purity. Without a doubt, God is holy. And God is uniquely holy. Now, by way of introduction, many theologians argue that holiness is more than just an attribute of God. Holiness is more than just an attribute of God. Holiness is a description of the very nature of God, of the divine essence of God. Holiness is a description of what it means to be God. Well, let me show you what I mean. There are many different ways to classify the holiness of God. For example, in my seminary notes under theology proper, the section of the study of God, the doctrine of God, the holiness of God is not included with the attributes of God. It is included under the heading of the divine nature. What sort of thing is God? Have you ever thought about that? What sort of thing is God? And the outline goes, God is a person. God is a spirit. God is a trinity. And God is holy. So holiness is actually a description of the very essence of God, the very person of God, the very nature of God. What sort of thing is God? God is holy. Just as God is a person, God is holy. Just as God is a spirit, God is holy. Just as God is a trinity, God is holy. It's just who God is. Charles Hodge agrees with this line of thinking when he says, the holiness of God is not to be conceived of as one attribute among others. It is rather a general term representing the conception of God's consummate perfection and total glory. Another example different way to classify the holiness of God. John Frame actually lists holiness not under the attributes of God, but under the names of God. God is Yahweh, the Holy One. Thomas Watson agreed. Watson says, holiness is the most sparkling jewel of God's crown. It is the name by which he is known. Yahweh is called the Holy One of Israel 31 times in the Old Testament, 25 times in the book of Isaiah alone. So in a very real sense, in a very real way, holiness represents the name of God. God's name is holy. It represents who God is. If you look at Frame's Doctrine of God book under the attributes of God, you won't find holiness there, but you will find it under the names of God. Others may classify it as 
one of the summary attributes, such as perfection or beauty or glory. We'll be talking about the summary attributes in one session, in our final session, three weeks from now. When we talk about summary attributes, we must realize that the summary attributes actually define all of the other attributes. So, for instance, God, let's take glory, just as an example. God's immutability is glorious. God's power is glorious. God's love is glorious. God's grace is glorious. Likewise, God's beauty. God's immutability is beautiful. God's power is beautiful. God's love is beautiful. Do you see how these are summary attributes? So likewise, some would classify holiness as a summary attribute. God is immutably holy. God's power is holy. God's love is holy. God's grace is holy. R.L. Dabney does this. Holiness is to be regarded not as a distinct attribute, but as the result of all God's moral perfection together. Sharnock does this as well. As sincerity is the luster of every grace in a Christian, so is purity the splendor of every attribute in the Godhead. And here we see summary attribute. His justice is a holy justice. His wisdom, a holy wisdom. His arm of power, a holy arm. His truth or promise, a holy promise. His name, which signifies all his attributes in conjunction, is holy. Now, I totally and fully agree with all of these, but I do not want to split hairs over this. If you want to talk about the holiness of God as an attribute of God, I will not argue with you. I just want to point out that there is something unique. There is something special about the holiness of God. If I were personally speaking, just on a personal level, classifying the attributes, I would classify it under the divine nature, under the divine nature. But because we are not doing a series on the divine nature, we're not doing a series on the Trinity or God as a spirit, we will actually talk about it here, just by default, as an attribute of God. And from here on out, I will be referring to it as an attribute of God. But I just want us to see that there is something unique, there is something special, there is something singular and set apart about the holiness of God. Why the fuss? Why this distinction? In a sense, what these theologians are trying to do is do justice to the biblical evidence. For instance, holiness is the only attribute which is ascribed to God three times. God is a thrice holy God. Isaiah 6, verse 3, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Revelation 4, 8 says, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God, the Almighty, who was and who is and who is to come. God is a thrice holy God. Scripture does not ascribe any other attribute to God in this way. God is not love, love, love. God is not grace, grace, grace. God is not immutable, immutable, immutable. God is holy, holy, holy. There is something unique about the holiness of God. Moving on to the definition of holiness, John Feinberg defines the holiness of God as follows. Scripture offers a twofold picture of divine holiness. On the one hand, God is holy in that he is distinct or separate from everything else. The second sense in which God is separate or set apart from everything is in his moral purity and perfection. So when we look at the words used for holiness in the Bible, 
we see that the main Hebrew verb, kadash, means literally to sanctify, to consecrate, to set apart. The Greek word hagias means the same thing, to set apart, to sanctify. The main Hebrew noun describes holiness as this, the essential nature of that which belongs to the sacred sphere, not the common or profane. Now that is going to become important. The essential nature of something that belongs to the sphere of the sacred, not ordinary everyday life things. So if we take all these together, we see that holiness describes being set apart, being separate, distinct. Scripture tells us two ways in which God manifests this holiness. One way God is set apart is because he is intrinsically unapproachable. He is transcendent. He is high and lofty. We cannot just go to him as we would go to a friend. We cannot just go to him like anybody else. He is different from us. He is distinct from us. This is called God's majesty holiness. The other way in which God is set apart, in which God is holy, is called his moral holiness. And this is what we would commonly think about when we talk about the holiness of God. He is morally pure and ethically distinct from any sin or evil. There is no darkness in God. There is no ethical wrong that God has ever done or ever dreamed about or ever thought. He is entirely morally pure through and through. Another way to think about these distinctions is that God's holiness has a relational quality, that is his majesty holiness, and an ethical quality, that is his moral holiness. So first, let's talk about the relational quality, the majesty holiness of God. This is the unapproachability of God, the transcendence of God. Now, strictly speaking, majesty holiness has to do with God's nature as belonging to the sphere of the sacred. Strictly speaking, it does not have to do with morality, although, of course, those are quite intertwined. The majesty holiness speaks of the very godness of God. God is God, and we are not. God is wholly other than what we are. God is wholly distinct. He is set apart in the sphere of the sacred. Now, this is difficult for us to understand. And I thought for a long time, how could I possibly illustrate majesty holiness? How could I possibly illustrate this relational aspect of God's holiness? And I realized... Well, there's an illustration in the Bible. That's a, that's a good illustration. So let's talk about a biblical illustration. Can't go wrong there. The best example of majesty holiness is actually in the temple. In the temple, you had bowls, cups, utensils, things that were set apart, that were set apart as holy for temple service. These things were set apart for sacred use. They were to be used in temple practices. So essentially speaking, if you take a bowl, one of the temple bowls, one of the sacred bowls, one of the holy bowls, you are not to use this to eat your salad with. You are not to use this to drink your soup with. You are not to put your rice in this bowl. This bowl is to be used for the temple and the temple alone. This bowl is to be dedicated to God, not for ordinary use. 
This bowl is sacred. It is set apart. It's not for you to bring home and do with it whatever you like. Now, is this bowl morally any better than any other bowl? Of course not. Bowls don't have morality. They can be used for moral things in moral ways or immoral ways, but the bowl in and of itself has nothing to do with morality. It's a bowl. But it is set apart for the sphere of the sacred. It is set apart for use unto God. It is set apart for temple practices. That's what it means to be set apart. This bowl is relationally different than any other bowl, even if it has nothing to do with morality. Likewise, with God's majesty holiness, God lives in the sphere of the sacred. Burkhoff says the majesty holiness includes such ideas as absolute unapproachability and absolute overpoweringness or awful majesty. It awakens in man a sense of absolute nothingness, a creature consciousness or creature feeling leading to absolute self-abasement. Isaiah 8.13 says, The Lord Almighty is the one you are to regard as holy. He is the one you are to fear. He is the one you are to dread. Exodus 15.11 says, Who is like you among the gods, O Lord? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in praises, working wonders? God is set apart. He is unique. He is distinct from anything or anybody else. Isaiah 57.15, For thus says the high and exalted one who lives forever, whose name is holy. I dwell on a high and holy place. Here, God's name is holy, and God is dwelling above us. He is transcendent. He is dwelling in a place that is sacred, a place that is high and lifted up. He's not the same as we are. He is exalted. I think this one best illustrates it. Hosea 11.9, For I am God and not a man the Holy One among you. That's what it means to be God. That's what it means to be the Holy God. He is God. He is not a man. He is not like us. He is separate from us. Do you see how these verses about the holiness of God, technically speaking, mention nothing about morality? They mention nothing about the ethical nature of God. They talk about the fact that God is transcendent above us. God is separate. Gerhardus Voss says about the majesty holiness, taking the divine holiness in this form, we can easily perceive that it is not really an attribute to be coordinated with the other attributes distinguished in the divine nature. It is something coextensive with and applicable to everything about God. God is set apart. Well, the other and more common way to think about God's holiness is in terms of his ethical purity, and this we call the moral holiness of God. Now, this can be further broken down in two ways. We speak of God's moral holiness in terms of both intrinsic and extrinsic holiness. By intrinsic holiness, we mean that God, in his very nature, is pure. He is ethically perfect. He is morally spotless. God, in his very nature, is holy, set apart from evil. Habakkuk 1.13 says, Your eyes are too pure to look upon evil. You cannot tolerate wrong. 
1 John 1.5 says, God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. God is entirely light. There is nothing to hide in God. There is no darkness in God. God's character is perfect. This is entirely true of the Godhead as well. The Trinity is holy. Jesus, God in human flesh, was intrinsically holy. Hebrews 7.26 says, For it was fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He's holy, innocent, and undefiled. The Spirit of God is called the Holy Spirit, Psalm 51.11. In John 17.11, Jesus calls God Holy Father. So every member of the Trinity, every member of the Godhead is holy. He is holy, holy, holy. God is also extrinsically holy, which means that because God in and of himself is entirely morally pure, all of his actions are entirely morally pure. All of God's actions are completely and utterly holy. The works of God are holy. Psalm 145, 17. The Lord is righteous in all his ways and holy in all his works. Everything that God does is holy. Everything that God decrees is holy. Not only are God's works holy, God's words are also holy. Psalm 19.8, the precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. Whatever God speaks is holy. Even more so, Heaven is called holy. The temple of the Lord is holy. The services within the temple are holy. The Sabbath is holy. The law is holy. The people of God are called holy. The church is called holy. We belong to the sacred sphere, and we are called to live a life of moral holiness and purity. So we've seen that God's holiness means that God is transcendently, majestically high and above us, that is relationally distinct from us. And we've also seen that God is morally holy, that he is ethically pure. Now, at this point, what I'd like to do is I would actually like to illustrate this distinction in holiness in the passage that we read this morning, Isaiah chapter 6, verses 1 through 10. Now, I want us to see the two ways in which God is holy here. First, there's the moral holiness of God. Isaiah says, woe is me. For I am ruined, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. So as soon as Isaiah comes face to face with the holiness of God, he is struck by his complete and utter sinfulness. He says, woe is me. He curses himself. Essentially, I am finished, because I am so sinful that when I come into the presence of a morally holy God, a perfectly holy God, I should be incinerated. I should be done. However, in this passage, there's not just the moral holiness of God. There's also the majesty holiness of God. Earlier on, the seraphim fly above God. With their two wings, they cover their faces. They cover their faces. With their two wings, they cover their feet. They cover their feet. God is too holy for them to look upon. They cover their feet because they are standing on holy ground. But why? 
Why? What is often overlooked is that seraphim and angels are sinless creatures. They are sinless. So when they come into the presence of God, these sinless creatures, they are not struck with their own sinfulness because they don't have sin. They are struck by the, more, by, by the transcendence and majesty of the holiness of God. God is set apart. God is distinct. Holiness to them is God's separateness, God's unapproachability, God's majesty holiness. For us, sinful man, it's both. In a sense, when Isaiah comes into the presence of God, this is like all of us when we first realize that we are dealing with the holy God. We cower before the holiness of God. Not only because we are sinful, but because God is not like us. So how shall we come into the presence of this holy God without getting incinerated by his holiness? Because if you think about it, really, in an instant, if any one of us should come into the presence of God, we would poof, we would be done. Woe is me. So how shall we approach this God who is holy, holy, holy? Well, the answer is here. John 12, 40 to 41. For Isaiah said again, he has blinded their eyes and he hardened their heart so that they would not see with their eyes and perceive with their heart and be converted and I heal them. These things Isaiah said because he saw his glory and he spoke of him. Guess where, where this is a quote from? This is a quote from Isaiah chapter 6. This is a quote from Isaiah 6 verse 10. We just read this. So John, in this passage, is referring to Isaiah chapter 6. And then John says, Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and he spoke of him. Who is John referring to? In the context of John 12, he is not referring to God the Father. In the context of John 12, he is referring to God the Son, Jesus Christ. His glory and speaking of him refers to Jesus in John 12. So John says that Isaiah saw Jesus. Isaiah saw Jesus' glory. Isaiah spoke of Jesus. Isaiah saw Jesus on the throne, lofty and exalted. The seraphim flew around Jesus and said, Holy, holy, holy is Jesus, the Lord of hosts. They are speaking about God the Son. Isaiah chapter 6 is talking about the holiness of Christ. The only place to prevent getting incinerated by the holiness of God is in God. The only place to prevent getting incinerated by the holiness of God is in Christ, God the Son. For when we trust in Christ... God looks upon us and he sees the holy, righteous obedience of his holy, righteous son. That's the only chance we have. In a practical application, remember that the holiness of God is your standard. God is holy, 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 and that's our standard. 1 Peter 1.16 gives us a command. You shall be holy, for I am holy. 
That's the standard. In our American church today, we have developed a sort of cultural holiness. We have compared ourselves to other people. We compare ourselves to our society. We compare ourselves to the news. We compare ourselves to Facebook or Twitter. We compare ourselves to other Christians. And we say in our hearts, well, at least I'm not like that guy. At least I'm not like that person. You know who else said that? It was the Pharisee in the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. I thank you, God, that I am not like other men. Brothers and sisters, we should not be comparing our holiness to other people. We should be comparing our holiness to God. That is our standard. Let me just say, when you're at the judgment seat, you won't be looking God in the face and telling him how much holier you are than the guy sitting next to you. God's standard is our holy. Is, is our, God's standard is our standard. No less. Now what I'd like to illustrate with this slide is the relationship of these attributes to one another. The holiness of God stands as the foundation, the base of the rest of this pyramid. Built upon the holiness of God is the righteousness of God. Justice refers to a narrower scope of God's righteousness. While God's wrath is one specific manifestation of his justice. We'll go over this again. But another way to think about it is from the top down. Wrath is an expression of justice. Justice is an expression of righteousness. And righteousness is an expression of holiness. We'll go through this one by one, step by step. The righteousness of God is built on the holiness of God. Righteousness refers to a strict adherence to the law. Generally speaking, when we say in our society, somebody lives a righteous life or that guy's righteous, we mean that he doesn't break any laws. He's never been convicted of any law-breaking. He's never had any run-ins with the law. So he lives by the law of the land. He's a righteous person. Well, this presupposes that there is a law to which he must adhere to. Well, when it comes to God, God is the highest expression of moral law. There is no law outside of God to which he must conform. So when we're talking about the righteousness of God, we are really speaking about the law that lies within God's holiness. The perfect moral holiness of God. And when we talk about the righteousness of God, we are talking about God's own strict adherence to his own moral law. The moral law that is built into his holiness. Burkhoff defines the righteousness of God as that perfection of God by which he maintains himself over against every violation of his holiness and shows in every respect that he is the Holy One. So you see the relationship here between the righteousness of God and the holiness of God. Let's take it one step further. God's justice is God's righteousness applied. God's justice is God's righteousness applied to his creatures, to humans and to angels. 
God's justice is God's righteousness applied to when situations of when his creatures do right and wrong or when his creatures are innocent or guilty. So in many ways, God's justice is an expression of his righteousness and God's righteousness is an expression of his holiness. So if God's holiness is the highest standard of moral law, then God's righteousness is his own strict adherence to this moral law and God's justice is God's application of this moral law to his creatures. God's justice refers to him giving each person what they deserve. It refers to him giving everybody their just desserts, their just due, their just reward or just penalty without partiality. Isaiah 5.16 says, But the Lord Almighty will be exalted by his justice, and the holy God will show himself holy by his righteousness. Romans 2.11 says, God shows no partiality. God is just. There are three categories of God's justice. The rectoral justice of God, the remunerative justice of God, and the retributive justice of God. Let's talk first about the rectoral justice. Burkhoff says, this is the rectitude which God manifests as the ruler of both good and evil. And that's an old term. But basically what Burkhoff is saying is that God has a right to impose laws over mankind. God has a right to impose laws of right and wrong over his creation. God has a right to judge his creation. Especially in our day and age, you hear a lot of people saying, well, who are you to judge me? You're not the judge of me. Well, that may be true when you say it to us, but that is not true when we say that to God. God has an absolute right to impose laws over his creation and to judge his creation. Isaiah 32:22 says, for the Lord is our judge. The Lord is our lawgiver. The Lord is our king, and he will save us. God is a lawgiver, and he has every right to be that lawgiver. Next, we have remunerative justice. Burkhoff says, this manifests itself in the distribution of rewards to both men and angels. It is really an expression of the divine love, dealing out its bounties not on the basis of strict merit, for the creature can establish no absolute merit before the creator, but according to promise and agreement. So God's remunerative justice refers to, for instance, us getting rewards when we obey God. Now, we don't have time to get into this, but I want to say very straightforwardly that as a Christian, I'm not talking about getting saved. I'm talking about when you are saved. It is possible to live obediently to please God. It is possible in your sanctification, not in your justification, it is possible in your sanctification to live in such a way as to gain heavenly treasure. And God will reward you. Romans 2, 6-7 says, God will render to each person according to his deeds. To those who by perseverance in doing good seek for glory and honor and immortality, eternal life. 
Finally, we have retributive justice, which relates to the infliction of penalties, and it is an expression of the divine wrath. In a sinless world, there would be no place for its exercise, but in a world full of sin, it necessarily holds a very prominent place. Romans 12, 19 says, Never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. You see, God necessarily needs to dole out retribution. God necessarily needs to punish sin. If God did not punish sin, we would not call him a holy God. If God did not punish sin, we would not call him a righteous God. If God did not punish sin, we would not call him a just God. In order for a judge to be just, they have to punish unrighteousness. Likewise, in order for God to be just, he must punish sin. This leads us to our final moral attribute, the wrath of God. Pink says, a study of the concordance will show that there are more references in scripture to the anger, fury, and wrath of God than there are to his love and tenderness. That's astounding. So the weight of scripture that bears down upon us shows us that God is a God of wrath. That is the least likely title of a book you will find at the local Christian bookstore. God is God of wrath. Right after God loves himself. It's the least likely title. Christianity today hates the God of wrath. Christianity today hates the wrath of God. They seek to ignore it. But how can you ignore it when you read the Bible? You can't. God isn't shy about his wrath. Romans 2, 5-6 warns, you are storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath, when his righteous judgment will be revealed. J.I. Packer defines the wrath of God as, the wrath of God denotes God's resolute action in the punishing of sin. It is as much the expression of a personal, emotional attitude, and we will talk about that in two weeks. Does God have emotion? It is as much the expression of a personal emotional attitude of the triune Jehovah as is his love to sinners. It is the active manifesting of his hatred of irreligion and moral evil. I'm just going to throw this in. I took it out because of time constraints, but I'm just going to throw this in. We've talked about, in the past, we've talked about open theism, if you remember way back. And Clark Pinnock is one of the fathers of open theism. He is also one of the fathers of the doctrine of annihilationism. Annihilationism, which means that people who believe in annihilationism say that when you go to hell, you will pay for your sins, and then eventually you will be incinerated into unconsciousness. So you'll just, your soul will cease to exist. They deny eternal, the, the eternality of hell. They deny the eternality of the soul. Does that make sense? So if you actually read Pinnock, I wish I didn't take it out because now I'm going to quote it. He actually says that he rejects the eternality of hell 
not on the basis of scriptural grounds, and that is a quote, but on the moral repulsiveness of the thought. So he's admitting that he is rejecting the eternality of hell, not on the basis of scriptural grounds, but on the moral repulsiveness of the thought. It repulses him that God should act in such a way. It repulses him that God should punish sinners eternally. It has nothing to do with what the Bible says. But if you actually look at the Bible, the words used in the Bible to understand what the wrath of God is, you cannot deny this. There are two words used for wrath in the New Testament. The first is thumos, meaning literally angry tempers, passion, or outbursts of anger. This refers to when God actually does pour out judgment upon someone or a group of people. For instance, God pouring out his wrath at the flood, God pouring out his wrath in Sodom and Gomorrah, God pouring out his wrath in the deportation of Israel. God is showing an outburst of his wrath, an outburst of his anger. The other word is orge, which refers to a smoldering anger, a steady impulse of anger stemming from one's nature or character. And this is where we get verses such as Psalm 7, verse 11. God is angry at the wicked every day. Man, that is a humbling verse. God is angry every day. The first refers to outbursts. The second refers to smoldering anger. And God exhibits both. Now, again, we will talk about this in two weeks. God is not subject to the sort of emotional mood swings that we are subject to. God is not flying off the handle. God is not losing his temper. But God does pour out his wrath. Now, is it right that God should have wrath? Why can't we just be like Clark Pinnock and just sweep this one under the rug? Why can't we just ignore this? Why can't we just close our Bibles and say, this morally repulses me, so I will refuse to believe in a God of wrath? Well, C.S. Lewis says, to ask that God's love should be content with us as we are is to ask that God should cease to be God. Because he is what he is. His love must, in the nature of things, be impeded and repelled by certain stains in our present character. And because he already loves us, he must labor to make us lovable. We cannot even wish in our better moments that he could reconcile himself to our present iniquities. To remove the wrath of God from God is to ask that God should cease to be God. So we return to our diagram. To summarize again, if God's holiness is the highest standard of moral law, then God's righteousness is his own strict adherence to his own moral law. And God's justice is God's application of this moral law to his creatures, to his creation. And God's wrath is what happens to his creatures when we do not adhere to this moral law. Now, God shows us his wrath for several reasons. 
and there are many, many more. We'll just mention a few. First, God's wrath is revealed that we might see God's deep and awful detestation of sin. God hates sin. Romans 1.18, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. God hates sin. Colossians 3.6, For it is because of these things that the wrath of God will come upon the sons of disobedience. Brothers and sisters, just really practically speaking, do you hate sin as much as God hates sin? Or do you live in a world of, quote-unquote, respectable sin? Do we exhibit the hatred of sin that God our Father does? Do we reflect God's holiness in our hatred of sin? Why do we mess around with sins that God so dearly hates? Why do we tolerate sins that God poured out his wrath upon Jesus for? Jesus went to the cross for this. Why do we tolerate that? We should hate sin as much as God hates sin. Secondly, God's wrath is revealed to give us warnings. Luke 13, verses 4 and 5 say, Or do you suppose that those 18 on whom the Tower of Siloam fell and killed them were worse culprits than all the men who live in Jerusalem? I tell you no, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. You see, sometimes God shows his wrath as a form of grace. God shows his wrath as a form of grace. The bottom line is, is that we all deserve wrath. The bottom line is, is that we all deserve conscious torment in eternal hell. That is what we deserve. But God sometimes pours out his wrath so that we may understand that we deserve this, that we are no better, that we are no better than the 18 people on whom the Tower of Siloam fell. And God gives us the opportunity to repent. And if we do not repent, then we too will likewise perish. Thirdly, God's wrath is revealed so that we might also have a true and healthy fear of God. Hebrews 12, 28 says, Let us have grace whereby we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear, for our God is a consuming fire. Brothers and sisters, we don't play with fire. We don't play with fire. You don't let your kids walk too close to the fire. We need a healthy fear of God because he is a consuming fire. Finally, God's wrath is revealed that we might fervently praise God for delivering us from the wrath to come. 1 Thessalonians 5.9 says, For God has not destined us for wrath, but for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, you are not a vessel of wrath. You are a vessel of mercy. I want you to think, just for a second, what is it like to endure the full wrath of God for your sins? What would that be like? For God to pour out 
his full wrath upon you for your sins. Just think about that. You know what? You will never know. You will never know what that feels like. You will never know, not for an instant, not for a day, not for an eternity, what it will be like for God to pour out the fullness of his wrath upon you. You will never know. Because Jesus took it all. He drank the cup of wrath that we were to drink. Christ fell on his knees in the garden and he said, Father, take the, let this cup pass from me. Let this cup pass from me, if it is possible, so that we might never taste the wrath of God. He sweat drops of blood. He was betrayed by his friend. He was mocked and scourged that we might never taste the wrath of God. He was hung upon an emblem of shame, a cross, that we might never taste the wrath of God. He was stabbed in the side, left to die, so that we might never taste the wrath of God. He died, was buried, and was raised again, so that we might never taste the wrath of God. Brothers and sisters, you will never drink the cup of God's wrath because Christ drank it for you. Robert Haldane says, Above all, the wrath of God was revealed from heaven when the Son of God came down to manifest the divine character. And that wrath was displayed in his sufferings and death in a manner more awful than by all the tokens God had before given of his displeasure against sin. So friend, if you're not a Christian here this morning, I say lovingly, that the wrath of God is set upon you. The wrath of God is set upon you. Matthew 3, 7 says very clearly, flee from the wrath to come. Flee from the wrath of God by fleeing into Jesus Christ. The only way for you not to drink the cup of God's wrath is to have Christ drink it for you. Father who's in heaven, Lord, you are a consuming fire. And Lord, you remind us, even in your word, just how seriously you take sin. Help us as your people, whom you set apart, whom you call sacred, whom you call holy, to be holy, holy, holy as you are and to detest sin as you do. Lord, help us to love you in the fullness of your glory, in the fullness of your holiness and even in the fullness of your wrath because that is who you are. We pray in the precious name of Jesus Christ who took the wrath for us. Amen.